Chapter number four of Hoof and Claw. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kevin Vink. Hoof and Claw by Charles Roberts. The White Wolf. On the night when he was born, in the smoke-smelling wigwam beside the lone Michikamal, there had come a strange, long howling of the wind amid the cleft granite heights which overhung the water. At the sound, the fainting girl on the pile of deerskins opened eyes which grew suddenly wild and dark. She listened intently for a moment, and then groped for the little form which had been laid at her breast. That is his name, she muttered. He shall be called Wind in the Night. The old squaw, her husband's mother, who was attending upon her, shook her head. Hush, my daughter she said soothingly that is not the wind that is the old white wolf howling on the mountain let us call him white wolf since he is of the totem of the wolf and perhaps the old white wanderer who disdains to hunt with the pack will befriend him and bring him good fortune his name is wind in the night said the young mother in a voice suddenly loud and piercing then she turned her head towards the wall of the wigwam wearily and with a sharp sigh her spirit passed from her lips, hurrying out over the black spruce ridges and barren hills to seek the happy hunting grounds of her fathers. The old woman snatched up the child lest the mother's spirit in passing should lure it away with her. Yes, she cried hastily, hiding the little one in a fold of her blanket and glancing over her shoulder. His name is Wind in the Night. It would never have done, as the father afterward agreed, to gainsay the child's mother at that moment of supreme authority, but the old woman had her misgivings, for she believed it was the white wolf, not the wind, who had spoken in that hour, and she trembled lest the child should come under his ban. As the years passed, however, it began to appear that the old squall's fears were groundless. Among the lodges, beside the bleak Michikamal, the child grew up without misadventure, and when he was big enough to begin his boyish hunting and to follow the trails among the dark spruce forests, it began to be rumored that he was in some special favor with the wolf-folk. It was said, and though he could not be persuaded to talk of it, he was never known to deny it, that the old white wolf, whose howling was like the wind in the mountain clefts, had been seen again and again following the boy, not obtrusively, but at a little distance and with an air of watching over him certain it was that the boy was without fear to go alone in the forest and went always as if with a sense of being safeguarded by some unseen influence moreover whenever the wind howled in the night or the voice of the solitary wolf came quavering down like the wind from the granite heights the boy would be seized with a restlessness and a craving to go forth into the darkness this impulse was quelled sternly by his father until the lad was old enough and wise enough to restrain it of his own accord but it was not held among the tribe to be any unaccountable or dreadful thing that the boy should be thus compassed about with mystery, for this was the tribe of the Nasquapes, the wizards, who were all mystics and credited with secret powers. As wind in the night grew to manhood, the white wolf grew less and less conspicuous in his affairs, till he came to be little more than tradition, but at any time of crisis there was sure to be some suggestion of him some reminder whether in a far-off windy howl that might be wolf or might be wind or else in a gaunt white shadow flitting half seen across the youth's trail whether as all the tribe took for granted it was always the same wolf a magic beast forever young and vigorous 
or whether the grim warder who had presided over the child's birth had bequeathed his mysterious office to a descendant like himself is a point that need not be decided suffice to say that when at the age of eighteen when the knight underwent his initiation into the status of full manhood a great white wolf played an unbidden but not unlooked-for part in it when during that long and solitary fasting on the hilltop the young man's fainting eyes saw visions of all and unknown portent and strange phantasmal shapes of beast and bird came floating up about him with eyes of menace always at the last moment would come that pallid prowling water and drive the ghosts away it was a bad winter in the gray fishing village at the mouth of the natashquan came word to win in the night that certain of the scattered bands of his tribe in the interior were near to starving he had been now some six months absent from home guiding a party of prospectors and his heart was troubled with desire for the little lonely cluster of lodges on the shore of the Mall. He thought of his own spacious wigwam of birch bark, with the crossed poles projecting over the roof. With a pang of solicitude, he thought of the comely and kindly young squall, his wife, and of that straight-limbed, copper-colored little five-year-old, his son, whose dark eyes danced like the sunlight on the ripples, and who would always run laughing to meet him and clutch him by the knees so sturdily. Wind in the night wondered if they were hungry was it possible that there could be fear and famine in that far-off wigwam deep in the snows while he here under the white man's roof was warm and well fed with smouldering eyes and no explanations he resigned his profitable post and started inland on his snowshoes with a toboggan load of pemmican and flour the men of the village pipe in hand and weary-eyed with their winter inactivity looked after him from their doorways and shook their heads He'll never make it to the Michikamal with that there load, muttered one. It's the wolves'll be getting the load, and him too, growled another. Another spat tobacco juice into the snow in sort of resigned derision. Then all closed their doors tight against the deathly cold, huddled up to their stoves, and dreamed grumblingly of spring. The solitary figure, bending the straps of his toboggan, never looked back. His thoughts were all in the distant wigwam of birch bark, and the woman and child within it might be hungry once across the bleak ridge which overlooked the settlement when the night was swallowed up in the untamed untouched labrador wilderness everywhere a confusion of low hills bowl-like valleys and spruce forests upthrusting their dark pointed tops above the enormous overlay of snow when in the night swung on with a long loping bent kneed straight-footed stride his immense racket-like snowshoes settling into the snow at each step with a curious muffled sigh that had small resemblance to any other sound on earth he chose his path unhesitatingly picking up his landmarks without conscious effort among hilltops and valleys and ravines which to the uninitiated eye must have all looked alike just before noon he halted lit a fire made himself a kettle of tea after the comforting fashion he had learned from the white men and chewed a rocky morsel of pemmican without taking the time to cook it then he pushed on eagerly the shadows began to fall early in that latitude and as they began to fall when in the night began glancing from time to time over his shoulder he did it half unconsciously so absorbed was he in his thoughts at last he caught himself at it as it were and for a moment wondered what he did it for the next instant with a little tangling at the nape of his neck just where on a dog or a moose the hair stiffens at such moments he understood he felt that he was being followed 
his path was the open snow-sheeted channel of a little river with the fir woods crowding down to its brink on either side when the knight halted and peered into the thickets with eyes trained and penetrating but he could distinguish nothing he listened but there was not a sound in all that lifeless world save a ghostly settling of the snow somewhere behind him he sniffed the air but his nostrils could detect no taint upon it he pushed on again and immediately he felt in his spine in his hair that the depths of the forest to the right and to left were full of moving life then he knew that he was being trailed by many wolves it was the thought of the woman and the boy hungry in their wigwam on the Mall, that made his heart sink he knew that for the moment he was safe but when the night came it would be another matter he was not afraid physically for his muscles and his nerves stretched to the thought of the great fight he would make before the gray beast should pull him down but that the food the sucker he was bringing should never reach the wigwam this thought turned his heart cold he increased his pace hoping to find a spot where he might encamp to advantage and fortify himself for the night in that broken country of wide-sown boulders and fantastic outcrop when in the night had reason to hope for a post of better advantage than the open trail and after a half-mile further travelling while yet there was daylight enough to discourage the wolves from showing themselves he found it about halfway up a sparsely wooded hillside to his right he marked a steep-faced boulder at the foot of which he resolved to make his stand on his way up the slope he passed a small dead fir tree and a stunted birch both of which he hastily chopped down and flung across his toboggan for firewood arriving at the rock he thrust the loaded toboggan close against its foot and then at a distance of about ten feet before it he hastened to start his fire it was a little fire a true indian's fire economical of fuel for there was no more wooden sight except green spruce which made but poor and precarious burning unless with plenty of dry stuff to urge it on he thought for a moment of venturing some little way into the woods in search of fuel but even as he was weighing the chances of it the dusk gathered and the wolves began to show themselves along the skirts of the timber some prowled forth and slipped back again at once into the gloom while others came out and stood eyeing him steadily but more fuel of some sort when in the night knew he must have about halfway between the rock and the skirts of the close growth stood a single small spruce he knew that its sappy wood would burn with difficulty but it would do to make the rest of the fuel last longer possibly with the most parsimonious care even till sunrise stirring his fire to a brisker blaze at which for a moment or two the wolves drew back into their covert he strode forth and felled the spruce in half a dozen skilful strokes then he dragged it back towards the rock to the watchers in the shadow however this looked like a retreat their hesitation vanished as if at a signal they shot from the covert and launched themselves a torrent of shadowy flame-eyed leaping shapes upon the man he catching sight of the dreadful onslaught over his shoulder dropped the tree he was dragging and sprang desperately for the doubtful shelter of his fire he felt in his heart however that he was too late that he would never reach the fire well he would not die pulled down like a fleeing doe from behind he faced about and swung up his axe his lean dark jaw set grimly the hordes of his assailants were within a dozen paces of him when suddenly they stopped thrusting out their forefeet with violence and going back upon their haunches with low snarls an immense white wolf had sprung in between the hordes in their quarry and stood there rigid confronting his fellows with bared fangs flattened ears and every hair erect along his back 
His authority seemed to be unquestionable, for not a wolf ventured to pass him. Reluctantly, sullenly, they drew back to within a few paces of the edge of the wood, and there they halted, some crouching, some sitting, some moving restlessly to and fro, and all eyeing their inexorable chief expectantly, as if looking for him to withdraw his inhibition at any moment and let them at their prey. When in the night gave one long look at his strange protector, then calmly turned and strode back to his fire. Calmly he proceeded to chop his wood into small billets for the more frugal use. Then he moved the fire closer in towards the foot of the rock in order that a smaller blaze might suffice to warm him through the night. Seating himself with his back to the loaded toboggan, he prepared his supper. His appetite craved a thick, hot soup of pemmican, but he had a feeling that the enticing smell of such a meal on the icy air might make the wolves forget their deference to his protector. He contented himself with a sticky and unpalatable gruel, made by stirring a couple of handfuls of flour into the boiling tea, and he felt a reasonable confidence that the smell of such fare would prove no irresistible temptation to wolfish nostrils. The thought occurred to him that perhaps he ought, in courtesy, to throw a chunk of pemmican to his protector, who was now pacing slowly and methodically to and fro before him like a sentinel, with eyes fixed ever on those waiting hordes. But to wind in the night the great white beast was no mortal wolf, and he feared to affront him by the offer of white man's food. The brief meal done, wind in the night lighted his pipe and smoked stolidly, crouching over the small fire. In spite of the terrific cold, he was warm enough here, with the rock close at his back, the snow banked up at either side, and his blankets around him. From time to time he fed the fire frugally, and calculated that at this rate he could make his fuel last the whole night through. But sleep was not to be thought of. His small, unflinching eyes looked out across the meager flames through the thin reek of the smoke, and met calmly the scores of cruel, narrowed eyes glaring upon him grimly from the edges of the timber. But the eyes of the tireless sentinel he did not meet, for they were kept always turned away from him. How long, he wondered, would the sentinel remain tireless, or how long would those ravening watchers remain obedient to the authority that denied their hunger relief? No, decidedly he must not sleep. Smoking endlessly, feeding the little fire and crouching over it, thinking of the wigwam on the lone white shore of the Michikamal, and watching ever that dread half-circle of hungry eyes and the gaunt, tirelessly patrolling shape of his white sentinel, he began to see strange visions. The waiting wolves vanished, in their place, emerging like mists from the forest, and taking form in the firelight came the spirits of the totems of his ancestors, white bears and black with eyes of men, eagles that walked stridingly, gray lynxes with a stare that seemed to pierce him through the bone, and towering black moose-bulls with the storm-drift whirling in their antlers. They filled him with awe and wonder, but he had no fear of them, for he knew that he had done no trespass against the traditions. Then, without surprise, he saw his white guardian, the living presentment of his own totem, grow at once to the stature of a terribou, and come and sit down opposite him just across the fire, and look meaningly into his eyes when in the night strove desperately to interpret that grave meaning. As his brain groped after it, suddenly a long, thin howling filled his ears, whether the voice of the wind or the voice of a wolf he could not tell. 
The sound grew louder, louder, more penetrating and insistent, and then he came out of his vision with a start. He lifted his head, which had fallen on his breast. A late and aged moon hung distorted just over the line of treetops before him. He was deadly cold, and the fire had burned down to a little heap of red embers. The dreadful raiding hordes had all vanished from the skirts of the timber, whirling off doubtless on the trail of some unprohibited quarry. Only the white sentinel remained, and he had shrunk back to his former stature, which was beyond that of his fellows indeed, but not altogether incredible. He was sitting on his haunches, just the other side of the dying fire. His long muzzle was lifted straight in the air, and he was howling to the decrepit moon. As wind in the night lifted his head, the white wolf stopped howling, dropped his nose, and stared earnestly into the man's eyes. Hurriedly but carefully, the man thrust some dry sticks into the embers and fanned them into flame. Then he stood up. He knew that the white wolf's howling had awakened him and saved him from being frozen to death. Thank you, white brother, he said simply, with firm confidence that the mystical beast could understand human speech in the tongue of the Nasquipes. The great wolf cocked his ears at the sound and gazed at the man inquiringly for a second or two. Then he arose slowly and sauntered off into the forest. When in the night knew that the peril had passed, he heaped wood onto the fire with what was, for an Indian, lavish recklessness. When he was well warmed, he went and dragged up the tree which he had felled, then cooked himself a liberal meal, a strong stew of pemmican and flour, and, having eaten it, felt mightily refreshed. Having no more inclination for sleep, he resumed his journey, resolving to snatch at the midday halt what sleep he should find himself needing. Now it had chanced, some days earlier than this, that in one of the lodges by the Michikamal a child had fallen sick. There was bitter famine in the lodges, but that was plainly not what ailed the little one. None of the wise men of the tribe could diagnose his sickness, and the child was near to death. Then an old brave, the child's uncle, who had been much about the posts of the Hudson Bay Company, which are scattered over Labrador, said that the white man's medicine was a magic to cure all disease, and that, if the little one could but come to one of the posts, his life would surely be saved. The old brave was himself hungering for an excuse to get away to the warmth which was to be found in the dwellings of the white man, and he said that he would take the little one out to the northwest river to be healed, and the mother, dry-eyed but with despair at her heart, had let him go. It was only a chance, but it seemed the only chance, and she greatly feared to meet the child's father if it should die in his absence. Wind in the night had made good going, and was eating up the long miles of his journey. At noon, in a deep trough dug with his snowshoes in the snow, and with a good fire at his feet, he had slept soundly for two hours. In that pure and tonic air, but little sleep was needed. That night there was no more sign of wolves, and he felt assured that his strange protector had led them off to other hunting. The trail from the Natashkwan was leading him almost due north. Late in the afternoon of the fourth day of his journey, he crossed the fresh trail of a wolf pack running east. He thought little of it, but from the habit of the trained hunter and trapper, he gave it a searching scrutiny as he went. Then he stopped short. He had marked another trail underlying that of the wolf pack. It was the trail of a man on snowshoes, drawing a loaded sled and traveling eastward. When in the night concluded at once from his direction that the traveler came from the lodges on the Michikamal, it must be one of his own people. He examined the tracks minutely, and presently made out that the traveller was going unsteadily, 
with an occasional stumble as if from weariness or weakness, and the wolf pack was hunting him. The trails being fresh, it was plain that the hunt could not be far ahead. Acting on the first impulse of his courageous spirit, when in the night started instantly in pursuit, hunting the hunters, then came the memory of his errand, the thought of the woman and the boy in the wigwam of birch bark, hungry and needing him, and he stopped, half turning to go back. For some seconds he stood there in an agony of irresolution, his heart dragging him both ways. If he went to the help of the hunted man, he might, more than probably, himself be pulled down and devoured by the ravening pack. He must think of his own first, and save his life for them. Then he thought of his fellow tribesmen, worn out with flight, making his last fight alone in the silence and the snow. His wife and boy, at least, were sheltered and with their people about them, and would not be left utterly to starve so long as there was a shred of meat to be shared in the tribe. He tried to turn back to them, but the picture of the spent and stumbling fugitive was too much for him. He snatched up his rifle, arpeening Winchester from the toboggan, and with a groan raced onward in the trail of the wolves. It was not yet sunset, and he felt reasonably assured that the pack would not dare to close in upon their prey before dusk began to fall, so he continued to drag his loaded toboggan along, knowing that, if he should leave it behind him, its precious cargo would fall a prey to the lynxes and the foxes. He calculated to overtake the chase at any moment. As he ran, sweating in his harness in spite of the intense cold, he studied the trail of the wolves, and saw that the pack was not a large one, perhaps not much beyond a score in number. If the fugitive should prove to have any fight left in him, they too would stand back to back and perhaps be able to pull the desperate venture through. Before he had gone half a mile, when in the night saw the trail of the pack divide and seek the coverts on either side of the track of the lonely snowshoer. That track grew more and more irresolute and uneven, and he knew that the fugitive could not be far ahead. He pictured him even now turning wearily at bay, his back to some rock or steep hillock, his loaded sledge up-tilted before him as a barricade, and the wolves crowding the thickets on either side, waiting for the moment to rush in upon him. He pushed on furiously, expecting this picture to greet his eyes at every turn of the trail, but still it delayed, and the tension of his suspense grew almost unbearable. The dusk began to gather among the white shrouded fir thickets. Why did not the fugitive stop and make ready some defense? Then he rounded a corner, and there, fifty paces ahead of him, was what he was looking for. But there was a difference in the picture. There were the wolves, no longer in hiding but stalking forth from the thickets. There was the upthrust of rock. There was the man at bay with his back to it. But the loaded sledge was not before him as a barrier. Instead of that, it was thrust behind him as something precious to be guarded with his life. The tall figure, at first bent with fatigue, straightened itself up defiantly, lifted a musket, and fired at a bunch of wolves just springing from the woods on his left. Flinging down the weapon, an old muzzle older, which there was no time to recharge, he reached back to the sled for his axe. At that moment, Wind in the Night recognized the old brave's face. With a gasp, he twisted himself clear of his harness and sprang forward. In the same instant, the wolves closed in. In the front of the attack was a great white beast, so swift in his leap that the man had no time to swing up his weapon in defense. A hoarse cry, whether grief or horror, burst from the lips of Wind in the Night as the mystic white shape of his protector sprang at the old brave's throat. But he did not hesitate. He whipped up his rifle and fired, and the white wolf dropped sprawling over the front of the sledge. 
in a sort of frenzy at the sacrilege of which in his own eyes he had just been guilty when in the night fired shot after shot dropping a wolf to every bullet but the fate of the great leader seemed to have abashed the whole pack and before half a dozen shots were fired they had slunk off stricken with panic without a glance at the man whom he had saved when in the night stalked forward and flung himself down upon the body of the white wolf imploring it to pardon what he had done as he poured out his guttural pleading a feeble child's voice came to his ears and he lifted his head with a sudden tightening at his heart i thought you would come pretty quick father said the small voice tremblingly for i'd been calling you ever so long a little face meagre and burning-eyed was gazing at him trustfully from among the firs in the sledge when in the night forgot the slain wolf he bent over the sledge and clutched the fail figure to his breast too amazed to ask any questions he shook in every nerve to think how nearly he had refused to come to that unheard call the old brave was starting to light a fire the boy was very sick he said calmly unjarred by the dreadful ordeal which he had just passed through i was taking him into northwest river to be cured by the white man's medicine but already he recovers so we will go back to the midget with the food good said win in the night he stood up and stared long at the body of the great beast whom he had slain we will take him with us he said at last and give him the burial of a chief it would be ill work if we should leave him to be eaten by the foxes end of the white wolf recording by kevin vink